If you remain standing and take out your Bible, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of John and the second chapter. It's on page 863 in your pew Bible. John 2, verses 1 through 11. If you are visiting, we are preaching through the Bible and hitting the highlights of it. The Lord willing will be done by uh, with Revelation at the end of December. We've been looking at the Gospels, a Gospel a week. We come now to maybe, throughout all the history of the Christians that have walked this planet, the favorite book, the Gospel of John. This is Jesus' very first miracle. And John, as an older man, writing and looking back, uh, gives insight the other Gospel writers did not have. And so he tells this wonderful insight of why Jesus did this miracle. Together as God's people, let's read verses 1 through 11 together out loud. And as you read, listen carefully, you're reading God's Word. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Gnaw, draw some out, and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The sins of reading of God's holy word, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. We uh, are in the process, as we said, of going through the books of the Bible. And for those of you that were not here, just a little review might help. Matthew... Mark and Luke were called the synoptic gospels. And that's just a 50 cent word meaning that you see them together. Sin, optic. And basically the pattern of Jesus' ministry, mostly around Galilee, they're very identical. John is different. Well, why did they write the gospels? The first followers of Jesus, first of all, had no clue who he was. They just knew this was a remarkable man. They didn't intend on writing a biography. But as Christ ascended to heaven, and he didn't come back right away, the church was exploding around the Mediterranean world, and Jews and now Gentiles had to be taught the truth. The first apostles and the early disciples were being executed and killed, so they needed a trustworthy, something that could be verified and corroborated. This is what Jesus said. No, he never said that. This is what Jesus did. We were there. We were eyewitnesses. Reduced it to writing. Mark probably was the first one we saw to reduce to writing. It's really the Gospel of Peter. He traveled with Peter. And in the church in the Middle Ages, there are four symbols you might see in stained glass that represent the Gospels. It's taken from the four beings from Revelation, the fourth chapter. 
Mark is symbolized as the man. It's the most human, the straightforward of the Gospels. Jesus, wham, this gospel of power and the power of the gospel. Matthew is symbolized sometimes as the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Matthew expands upon Mark and shows Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. He's the Messiah. Luke is symbolized as the ox. The ox was the servant beast. In Christ came, I came to serve and the sacrifice And Luke, the only Gentile to write any of the Bible, writes the longest of the Gospels and fills in. We come this morning to, as I said, most people that have walked this planet. There are two billion people on this planet of the six billion that believe Jesus is who he claimed to be. It's been estimated that through history, probably another three or four billion since Christ have followed. It's hard to say, but probably of the five billion or so people that we will meet in eternity. John is their favorite book. If you gave your life to the Lord as an adult, the first book somebody told you to read was the Gospel of John. It's symbolized as the eagle in stained glass. Because the eagle has heaven's view of looking down on the world. John, as an older man writing, looks back and he brings these eternal mysteries of God. How could God be fully God and fully man in Jesus and bring it to us. Now, it'll be fun, won't it, when we get to meet the gospel writers? And remember, won't heaven be a blast? And I've always told you the three surprises. Who's there, who's not there, and that you're there. Those are the three big surprises. And we'll get a chance to finally get to talk to them. And they are, they'll find out they're humans. Well, uh, this morning is our last installment in a very hard-to-find PBS special on the uh, writers of the four gospels. Uh, <laughs> what if they were alive today? What would they say? This morning we have John. Watch this. Hello, I'm Marion Wise, and welcome to another edition of Book Chat. Today is the fourth and last in our series of interviews of the writers of the Gospels of the New Testament. Today we get up close and personal with John. Shallow. John, I understand you wrote your book because you were dissatisfied with your contemporaries' accounts of the gospel. That's absolutely true, Mary, and no offense to my esteemed brothers, of course. Oh, none taken. Yeah, sure. Well, I might be the teeniest bit miffed. (laughs) Well, the truth of the matter is, Mary, and after reading the other accounts, the confusion in the community was intolerable. Confusion? How so? I give you a simple matter of Christ's divinity. From Rome to Ephesus, Christians weren't sure if Christ was God when he was born, or when he was baptized, or when he started his ministry. It was total chaos. My book clarifies that Christ was with God, and in fact was God, from the very beginning. So your gospel is a sort of clean-up batter, if you will. Well... Exactly. Uh, you know, you you may want to open up a door or something, because I'm not sure if there's enough room in here for all of us and his big head. Care to respond, John? You know, the truth of the matter is, Marion, if I learned anything from my time with Jesus, it's that as long as I'm doing what the Lord has called me to do, I don't give a flying fig what other people think of me. Oh, and here I am without my figs. <laughs> John, could you tell me what is the most important thing that a reader can take away from your gospel? No, that's simple, Marion. Jesus of Nazareth is the living and breathing incarnation of God himself, fully human and yet fully God. 
and the Savior of all mankind. He was and is and is to come. Jesus is, in short, the great I am. Preach it, brother. Amen. Go ahead, you know you want to. Oh, all right, hallelujah, praise Jesus. So, John, what's next for you? No plans, really, Mary. No, look, you know, I was thinking about maybe retiring to a little island somewhere. That's just wishful thinking, of course. Well, I, for one, hope you get your wish. Gentlemen, that's all the time we have for the series on the Gospels. I've enjoyed having you in the studio. Hope you've enjoyed it as well. And for you at home, until next time, this is Marion Wise for Book Chat. We uh, don't have any record of the uh, disciples, the apostles ever sitting down together, obviously, and corroborating. We did see that Mark is uh, used extensively by Matthew and Luke in the order. Of course, uh, Luke being traveling with the apostle Paul, we saw, and filling in from that side. Matthew, one of the original 12. But John's is so different. This morning, for the next four weeks, we're going to be taking a look at some of the differences of the Gospel of John. And this morning, we're going to look at how John handles the miracles. For John, he only picks seven miracles. Seven, of course, the sign in uh, the Scriptures, numerically, of meaning completion. He picks five miracles that the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't record. But for John, he doesn't use the typical Greek word for miracle. He uses the word samion, and it means sign, like a calling card, like an announcement. The miracles for John is not Jesus helping people get out of a jam in life, though they do that. These are statements about who he is. And the power that the kingdom of God has come upon us, it's right here. This is a whole new order of life in Jesus, is that he has the power to do these signs. And the impressive thing about Jesus to John is not that he can fix things like heal legs and the blind and feed 5,000 and raise the dead and walk on the water. What blows John away is he can transform human lives just by encountering him. And Bel Air, with the mission that you and I have, if you and I want to have literally the miraculous, and I mean that in our life, the stuff is available, but it's only available to those that are willing to act in obedience to what Christ says and the trigger of faith. Well, let's take a look at this gospel a little closer as uh, we go. Turn with me back over to John and to the first chapter. Let's take a little bit, a look at the uh, structure of it and who this author was. It's on page 862 in your pew Bible there. Now, you'll remember that the Beginning of Matthew, the book of genealogy of the birth of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew launches into showing that Christ is a fulfillment of the Messianic line. Mark, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Bam, he's right off to telling it. Luke, he says, many people have given an orderly account and I have investigated and studied these things and put down within it those who were 
you know, Roger and me and those of us who are ordained in Presbyterian were called ministers of the word. That term comes from the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Those who were ministers of the word, and he's checked it out. Watch how John begins his Gospel. Let's read verses 1 through 5 together out loud. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Wow, did you see that? No birth narrative, no infancy statements, no baptism of Christ, no temptation. Bang! He's going all the way back to Genesis. John thinks you've read one of the other Gospels, or at least you've heard the stories of Jesus. And he's filling this in. In Genesis, in Hebrew, Breshit Barach Elohim, Ha'et Hashemayim va'et Ha'eretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What John is doing here, in the Greek, ain arche, archaic, ain halagos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then he doesn't say the Word was like God, like he's just another deity. But he doesn't say he is the God, like he's the Father. He does a grammar move here and he says, he's God too. He's with God and God. The mystery of the triune God right away, John is getting on. Well, who was John? Uh, Turn with me over to the uh, end of the book. Turn over to John 19, the 35th verse, page 882. This is, of course, he was, of all the disciples, was standing there. John was uh, probably a teenager, so he wasn't that much of a threat. It is interesting, the only one willing to die for Christ is the only one who wasn't martyred. A tradition does say that he was boiled, but he didn't die in the Romans' rule of double jeopardy. They thought that God saved him. They didn't execute him, but they banished him to Patmos. It's a little island off of present-day Turkey. It was a Roman penal colony, copper mines there. And that's where the Holy Spirit revealed the book of Revelation as he is writing. But look what he says here in verse 30. Four. Now this is piercing Jesus on the cross. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. Now watch. He who saw this has testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true and he knows that he tells the truth. John the Elder, and we'll take a look at this in the next few weeks, who wrote 2nd and 3rd John, was probably the secretary who wrote this down. But John the Apostle, the young disciple, the one who was so humble that he was called the disciple whom Jesus loved, he would never use his own name, not because he's bragging, but because he didn't want any of the attention. And then look over at the end of the 21st chapter, starting in verse 24, next page. This is the story of where Jesus says, you know, if he doesn't die till I come back, Peter, you keep your eyes on me. We'll study this later. But this is a disciple who's testifying to these things and has written them. And we, who is we, know that his testimony is true. There are many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose the world could not contain the books that would be written. 
So obviously, what John has done is he has selectively brought together certain things by the Holy Spirit moving in to tell us who Christ is. Polycarp, you heard of him? He was executed in the year 155 as a disciple of Jesus, is 85 years old. In fact, uh, people love Polycarp. He was a great mind, and the Romans didn't want to kill him. If he would just take a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord, that's how you took your oath of allegiance. And the Romans didn't care what you believed. Just don't be troublemakers. Just say Caesar is Lord. And these stinking Christians wouldn't do it. They kept saying, Jesus is Lord. And the Romans are going, we don't care what you believe. This pinch of incense was an act of worship. And they didn't want to kill Polycarp. And he said, I, I've walked with uh, my Lord all these years. Would I deny him? And they took his head off. He said that he learned from John. And we have his writings. He was a disciple of John. And John wrote this gospel. Eusebius later in the year 300 would write and say early on that John the Apostle composed his gospel to fulfill and supplement what the others had written. So there's little doubt, though uh, it's funny, uh, a generation ago, all of academia said John was written about 200, and everybody believed it. The conservatives didn't, because of Eusebius. Then they discovered some little fragments called the Rylands Papyrus, and they were dated at 135, and they're parts of the Gospel of John, and... The liberal academia went, never mind. Uh, and then, <laughs> so as, as you find out, what you have in your hands is what the original writers intended. That doesn't mean anything. What means something is how do you and I respond to this? And John's purpose is in showing these semians, these signs of Christ. Uh, let's do a little quick uh, tour here. Uh, turn with me over to John, the... Uh, Let's start on the uh, fourth chapter. Let's take a look at these signs that he picks. We'll come back to the turning the water into wine. But in the fourth chapter, we see that the second sign that Jesus does is he heals this official at Capernaum. And he says, my son is sick. He says, go. And as soon as the father leaves, and this will be a theme with him, the son is healed. Turn over to the fifth chapter. There's the guy who's been lame for 38 years, waiting to be healed. Nobody puts him in the water. Jesus says, quit your whining and get up. And the, as soon as the guy starts to get up, he's healed. Then you go on and you see in the sixth chapter, he feeds the 5,000. The little boy has five barley loaves and two fish. It's like a crowd three times as big as this. And we just got a kid here with a Big Mac and a large fry. And uh, Jesus heals everybody with that. Then Jesus walks on the water at the end of the sixth chapter. In the ninth chapter, there's the man who was born blind. The word for shepherd in Hebrew, roe, means to see over, because they oversee the flocks. Jesus, as we're going to find, he will, we'll see next week, he is the great shepherd. So John pulls out this healing of this blind man. Tell him to put mud on his eyes and goes and washes and he's healed. And then the final of the seven is in the 11th chapter, of course, Lazarus. The man who's been in the tomb three days, the friend of Jesus. His rich friend who he used to crash for the weekend with all the time dies. Jesus lets him die and then he brings him back to life. These are calling cards. Because he raised Lazarus, but he left a million people in the tombs then. He heals the lame man and he left a hundred thousand of them still crippled. 
He feeds them, but only gives them one meal. They don't show up every day. They probably did. He's not here to someday there will be no more hunger. There will be more death. What he's saying is the invasion has started. You got a power in your midst now, John is saying. Nothing like the world has seen. A whole new order is with us. And his very first miracle is the ultimate sign of that. Turn with me back over to uh, John 2. So there, you've done the whole gospel. Let's close in prayer. No, uh, not yet. But uh, Chapter 2. This is a great story. You remember, John is by the cross and Mary, Jesus' mother. And Jesus says, Behold your son. Behold your mother. He gives the young disciple John to Mary. And he gives Mary to his son. And he never calls her mother. He calls her an ingratiating word, which we'll see here, woman, is like lady or ma'am. But he makes it very clear our relationship is different. But so John, who traveled with Jesus, one of the disciples, also lived with Mary in Ephesus. That's why he was exiled down to Patmos. I think John remembered this, but this is also through Mary's eyes as they were sitting and the Holy Spirit brings to their memory. This is a marvelous story. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. As they say, behind every successful man is a shocked mother-in-law. Well, this mother knows that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, do you know the twelve he called? Imagine the first time he brought them home for lunch and said to his mother, basically, here they are. (laughs) And she probably said, oy vey, or something like that. (laughs) So there's this wedding up at Canaan of Galilee. Jesus and the boys are invited. Uh, They're not exactly high on the church list, the synagogue list of classy people. And... They show up at the wedding. Verse 3. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, why would she say this? The wedding is obviously, Cana is a little town north of Galilee, kind of in the hill country, a beautiful setting. And the wedding party lasted a week, and you invited the whole town. You think receptions are expensive now. And they show up, and when the wine ran out early on, This would have been an embarrassment. It was probably a poor couple. So she turns to her son. We have no record of Jesus doing anything yet. And she says, they have no wine. Now this is great. Jesus says to her, woman, or like ma'am, what is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. He's saying, now is not my hour to do the spectacular and grandstanding. My father will tell me when. Because, you know, she's pushing on him already. And he says, my hour's not yet come. Now, wouldn't, and of course, Mary went, I understand. Well, she turns to the servants, says, do whatever he tells you. Well, this is great. She's going, they have no wine. He says, it's not my hour. She says, okay. Turns to the servants. Maybe he'll act like the Messiah. I don't know. Just do whatever he says, okay? <laughs> is that human? Jesus isn't just giving in to his mother, though. He knew this was going to happen. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish wipes of purification to wash your hands or your feet before. This is 180 gallons of booze he's about ready to make. This is a lot. And we're going to start to see the symbolism of this. He said, fill them up with water. So they filled them up with the brim. He said, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. 
When the steward tasted the water, it became wine and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn it knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said, Everyone serves the best wine first, and then the poor wine after everybody's been hammered. It's kind of a Hebrew word about that. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus, when Mary says they have no wine, and he says, that's not my hour. Notice Jesus never gets the credit here. The servants who drew it knew. And he says, fill them up with water. Now, why the wedding? The wedding was symbolic that God said in the Old Testament that you belong to me. God said in Hosea, he said, told Hosea, remember we studied, go buy, go marry that slut, that hooker out there by the name of Gomer out there. She's not faithful to you. She's going to betray your heart. And you keep go getting her and bringing her back. Because Israel, that's what I feel for you. Even when you step out on me, I still want you back. Ezekiel in the 8th chapter, 18th chapter speaks of God putting his cloak over Israel as she grows in the field and betrothes her and marries her. Isaiah said, you will be my wife and I will be your husband, O people of God. The wedding is very symbolic is why Jesus is there. And why the wine? Well, the wine was a symbolism of not just celebration, but of also of holy acts. Now, there's a lot of debate in the church. Uh, was it fermented wine? Was it just grape juice? Uh, my One of my spiritual fathers, Eliezer Erbach, a, a Jewish survivor of... Uh, Polish Jew. Every time he goes to go, he's a messianic. He knows the Jesus of the Messiah. When he does Seder meals and he goes to Baptist churches, they only have grape juice. It's really hard for him to sit down, you know. <laughs> By the way, you know the difference between kosher wine and grape juice? It's about a week. That's about the only uh, difference in there, but <laughs> gotta move up to two buck chuck. But uh, as Jesus <laughs> is making this wine, was it fermented? I believe, yes, it was. Now, how do we handle alcohol? First of all, we need to know that you and I live in a world that is awash in booze. And it wrecks more lives than any other substance that we have. It is unbelievable the lives that are wasted because of alcohol. The reason we serve grape juice when we do communion is not because we don't believe in wine, but because we're being sensitive to the alcoholics that are there. And you and I, as we handle alcohol, I personally believe that you have the freedom to participate in it. You have to be extremely cautious. And if you can't have just a drink, that is a really a sign to you. You don't need any. Like they say, if you're an alcoholic, one drink is too many and a million is not enough. So we need to be sensitive about that. Having said that, Jesus, I believe, is making great Cabernet or Chardonnay or whatever he was making here. So they fill it up with water, and notice this is the thing about the sign. Every one of Jesus' miracles. If you want a miracle in your life, and this stuff is available, I am not kidding. But only to those that are willing to believe first and pull the trigger of faith, then God releases that. Miracles don't happen because you have some preacher up front yelling and pushing people over in the spirits. That's called grandstanding. Miracles happen when people encounter the living Lord and they say, God, I believe you. Now, notice what he does. It's when they fill it with water and when they're walking that it's transformed. 
It's when that we saw the young boy hands over the lunch, then Jesus divides it. It's when he is puts the clay on the man's eyes and tells him to wash. Jesus healed other people, but he made them go and wash it, and then he sees. It is when they rolled away the stone for Lazarus. Jesus could have done that. And he calls him out and he says, then you unbind him. God wants to do these miracles through you and me, but only when we move. I know so, there's so many great brothers and sisters and I love the ministry here at Bel Air as God's blessing and growing it. But I can tell you after two years, there are so many of us that live such marginalized spiritual lives. I mean, we sit around, we do our little token Christianity because it makes us like this is some self-enhancement program. And we wonder why our lives are such spiritual schlock. Well, I'll tell you why. Because God doesn't play church. He doesn't play games, and we're not either. What I want all of us, I don't want anybody left behind. One of the things the special forces, one of their great mottos is no one left behind. I don't want any of us left behind in just this mediocre Christianity. The things we worry about. I mean, what do most of our head life, the prayer requests we get most of the time, and God cares about little things, yes. But it's normally about how do I feel, how do I look, how, who cares how you look? Some of you might care a little more, but God really doesn't. No, I'm just kidding about that. God doesn't care how you look. God doesn't care how famous you are. God doesn't care how rich you are. And that's what bugs us about God. (laughs) Isn't that true? God, I'm talking here. Don't you get bothered by the nonchalance of Scripture about the things that we get our lives in a knot over? Who are you going to marry? What are you going to do about your career? And the Bible says, yeah, whatever. But let me tell you about the important things. And we say that is important. And he says, no, it's not. And so the moment we learn to start stepping out, that's why it's so important that some of you really do belly up to the bar and say, I'm going to help teach these kids. For your sake, not just theirs. It's so important that some of us, when's the last time you invited a heathen friend to worship? And if you don't have any pagan friends yet, I got a long list of them, okay? You need to be hanging around the people that are so obnoxious that you think God loves them only in theory. Because no one else could. (laughs) And you need to, first of all, be learning how to share your faith. And I don't mean jump them for Jesus. You know, where you're always trying to sneak Christ into the conversation. Like, you go out to lunch, like I always say, and you take the French fries, make it the sign of a cross, and go, what's that say to you, huh? Does that (laughs) do anything? No. But I have a question. Does your world outside of here have any clue how much you love Christ? And if not, why not? When's the last time you invited somebody here? You know, this that's what's so great about this comedy opportunity that's coming up, to buy a ticket for that. you got some friends that you'd be afraid to invite them to church because they think we're going to jump them and baptize them, you know, when they come in the doors. But you want to say, how do you encounter? Invite them to this comedy. That's a great way, just planting those seeds. And here's something else. I can't tell you the lessons that I have learned watching people. I love getting older. I really do. Carolyn doesn't like my getting older, but uh, what, what I love about this is, first of all, you got an excuse not to do all sorts of stuff. No, I'm too old for that. 
You can say as you approach uh, 50, it's great. Like I say, you've been over tying your shoes. You think, is there anything else I need as long as I'm down here? That's yeah, kind of a strain. But why I love the script, I love getting older because I see how true God's word is. It is so true. Those who obey the Lord and do what he asks, even when life hammers them, keep going. And those who don't, I don't care how many trinkets, how many houses, cars, fame they've got, their lives are empty styrofoam cups. And the worst hasn't happened yet. And one of the things are finances. You know, all the people that lost all that money in the dot-com, that quote, paper money, think what you could have done for the kingdom if you'd sold it and honored God when you had it. Do you think God will just say, bummer, you didn't catch the market in the right time? Because it's all passing away. This stuff is all going. That's why he said, you bring the harvest to me now. And whether you bring it to Bel Air or not, you're big boys and girls, you pray about it. It's my job to get us ready for that day because you miss out on the miracles. It is so great to see the things that the Lord does when you honor Him. And so he tells this story, this account of when they come and they taste the wine. But Jesus didn't do this just to, because he's king of the partiers. And a good time was had by all. He wasn't doing some magic trick so they would go, ooh. It said, and Jesus performed his first semion, his first sign, and manifested his glory, doxia. And his disciples believed on him. This was something new in the world. This was something they'd never planned on. And aren't weddings... What if you went to a wedding and Jesus was there? These guys that showed up for this little country wedding never expected to encounter the Son of God and watch His first manifestation of the kingdom in their midst. And weddings, you know, I don't get to do a a lot of them because a lot of my Saturdays are downtown. You know, half the pastors downtown have full-time jobs outside, and so you got to do a lot of things on the weekends and the timing. But I used to love to do a, a lot of the weddings. One, one guy, I remember, we were doing premarital, this was some years ago, and he wanted to marry her, but his mom really didn't want him to. And, you know, and I had to tell him, you know, someday you're going to have to leave home. And hey, I know, but she really doesn't like him. And I tell you the truth, by the way, the guy was 58 years old. <laughs> I'm not making that up. And... The night of the uh, the rehearsal dinner, we were sitting down front, and all of a sudden the back doors blew open, and some old lady came in with her walker, and she goes, Who's in charge? And I thought, Well, I'm not. I can tell that right now. <laughs> but something as simple as a wedding, God used, and it showed who he was. Hey, Bel Air, you give me six hours a week. I want two hours of your week in worship, one hour in worship and one for an adult ed study on either side of that. Give me two hours a week in a small group, and gentlemen in particular, where you can sit around with some guys with a cup of coffee or some hot tea, and ladies likewise, and you can share life. And you give me two hours a week in service. One hour maybe here, or maybe downtown, or one of our mission trips, I don't care. You give me six hours a week, and I will change your life. You give me playtime, and you'll just sit there with the stale water of the world versus the wine of the kingdom. You give me six hours a week, and I'll give you friends that will last a lifetime. And when you first meet them, you'll think there's no way I could be this person's friend. 
And they're thinking that about you, likewise. (laughs) And watch what God does. And you give me six hours a week. I mean this. I'll give you memories you'll smile about on your deathbed, ready to meet Christ. God uses the most remarkable things. This city can change. We got to work with the churches in the valley and on the west side that love Christ and work together. And we're starting to ratchet it up this fall. How can we have so many empty rooms in this city every night and there are 84,000 people to sleep on the streets? How can we have laws that require, because of health, to throw away the food this country does and people are hungry? How can we have some brilliant young minds all around this city, young little lives, and we got people here that got educations that if you could just spend an hour tutoring them, teaching them to read or write. God can change things. What if you had one day in L.A. when it was on earth like it was in heaven? One day, 24 hours, nobody was alone, nobody slept on the streets, everybody was filled, there was singing and praise. That's what God's about, and that's what we're about. But we got to be obedient to the Lord where we're at, and what God will use. God can use anything. At times, I am shocked the Lord will sometimes use me. And you'll go, no way. I go, way, yes. That sometimes the Lord will use things you really can't imagine. An African pastor friend uh, that I had met when I was over in Tanzania was sharing of one of the elders of his church. He was talking a lot about, we're talking about lives and transformation. He says, this guy, you'd have no idea. He was raised outside of Moshe in the hills there in one of kind of the animistic tribal Things And he hated Christians because he associated Christianity with all the colonization. First the Germans and then the English that came in. And he hated them. And his wife became a Christian. And he beat her bad every time she went to church. And he would just hang around drinking out of those bad plastic cups they have with the homemade beer. And she would go off to work and raising the kids. And he was just mean as a snake to her. Well... Not only did she, a lot of times, every Wednesday night and every Sunday morning, this pastor said she would come and sit right over here on this side of the church. You know, they have the big dirt floors and they have their little pews they've made. And she had her dog. It was like kind of a mutt that came with her and sat right there. At the end of the service, the pastor would say, if any of you would like to be prayed for, to pray with others, and she'd come forward every Sunday and pray for people and for her husband. She died. She got an infection. They don't know if it was malaria or what. This mean husband sat there and watched this dog every Sunday get up at 9 in the morning and leave and come back at 1. And he thought, what is this crazy dog doing? And so he followed that dog and that dog would come to that church. Sit right there. The pastor said at the end of the service, when he gave the invitation, if you'd like to be prayed for or pray with, that silly dog came forward, because she did, every week, and sat there. This husband was so broken, thinking of his wife, he came forward and gave his life to Christ. 
God will use what it takes. God will use you as his daughter, as his son, and bless you and suspend things and change things. Or God will use you as an example. But God will use all of us. Bel Air, do you see this morning that God says all the stale slop of the world quit sucking on? Turn off the plug-in drug for a while, all the video, all the TV, all the movies. How about spending some time in reality with me? I remember Peter Engel, you know, he's back working and overseeing all the art and entertainment back at Regent College, you know, president of NBC. I asked if he watched a lot of shows. He says, I don't have time to watch a lot of TV, you know. He happens to be, you know, overseeing NBC. But he says, you know, i got to help produce them. And, yeah, I like to watch them. But, you know, people that are so tuned into it, he says, come on. Are we ready to be able to say, Lord, would you open up? I'm ready to be obedient to you. You know what God's asking you to do. I don't. I don't need to know. That's between you and the Lord. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to pay for anything. He's already done that. You just need to say, Lord, I'm ready to take that next step. Let's pray, shall we? God, I thank you that for this young life that walked with Jesus by the name of John. I thank you, God, for his faithfulness to you and the trials he went through and that... Lord, you would inspire him to record by your spirit the great truths we have. Lord, I pray right now for those that are here that maybe they've never given their life to the Savior. They know the story, but they don't know the author. If you've never given your heart to the Lord and you've been aware of another voice besides mine that's been tugging on your heart, all you need to do is to say, Christ, I believe you shed your blood on that cross and you're alive. Lord, I want to repent. I want to change direction. I take all I know of me and I give it to all I know of you. And Lord, then I'm afraid, would you come and take over my life? And Lord, for all of us, help us to be obedient and take that next step, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking care of us. And now, God, as we get a chance to give back to you just a little token of what you've blessed us with, we give these tithes and offerings because of what your Son means to us. Lord, for those that can't give, I pray you would help sustain them and hold them in your arms, so many people out of work, and show us how to help. And those of us, Lord, that can give generously, give us the wisdom and the joy of being a steward. So thank you, Lord. Bless you. Thank you for the miracle of changing people like me. In your name I pray. Amen.